Good morning, and I have the privilege of introducing our speaker this morning, Matt Felton. Uh, Matt planted Trinity Church of Loudoun five years ago, which meets in Leesburg. My wife and I had the privilege of attending there when I was on sabbatical, and it's a, just a wonderful fellowship of believers. And uh, Mark Mullery is preaching at Trinity Loudoun this morning. Uh, we met Matt through the Pillar Network. We're a part of a, a, a church network of Pillar, and we've gotten to know each other through lunches that we share each month with about six to seven pastor churches in our region. And it's a good time of fellowship and sharing vision and equipping. Um, we're excited to be a part of the Pillar Network because Pillar churches have a common view of doctrine, and we're committed to the same mission, and that's equipping, planting, and revitalizing churches together. And Matt's church, excitingly, planted a church in Delhi, India last year. They sent Prasoon Goel, who's done, who did an internship with them, and then went back to India to plant a church there. Matt is originally from North Carolina. He went to North Carolina State University. He's married to Natalie. They have four daughters, uh, down from 12 down to two. Matt's going to come and preach in a minute, but John Hollinger is going to read from Ruth chapter one, and uh, Matt's going to come up after that, and let's welcome him when he comes up on stage, okay? All right, John. Good morning. Ruth chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the name of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. <laughs> then she arose and her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she so she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest." each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? I have yet sons in my womb, that they may become your husbands. Turn back, my daughters. Go your way. For I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should, sorry, if I should say I have hope, 
even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for the sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Verse 15. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and my God, your God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Thank you, John. Thank you, Kenneth. And thank you, Redeeming Grace, for having me and for already several of you uh, coming and finding me and, and encouraging me. And I haven't even preached to you yet. So well done, Redeeming Grace. Five out of five stars. <laughs> My name is Matt. I'm very glad to be here with you guys this morning. I'm very grateful for your pastors and their friendship and uh, partnership in the gospel through the Pillar Network, and it's been a joy to get to know them, to know you guys uh, now through them. Uh, the only downside to my being here this morning is missing Mark, being with, with our church family. What a privilege to have him with. Our church is a pretty young congregation, so Mark will be very much like having dad come over to hang out with the kids, which I'm, I'm very excited for. Um, the book of Ruth, if you don't if you haven't turned there yet in the Bible, it's relatively early in the Bible. Uh, several big books, and then the eighth tiny little book, which you can skip right past uh, after the book of Judges, is Ruth. I grew up about four and a half hours south of here in a pretty small town in eastern North Carolina. And I have three brothers, and we grew up, my, my dad built a place way back in the woods and on a big hill, and surrounded by several acres of just woods and no other neighbors for, for a long ways, which was really an ideal place for 
young boys to grow up and to have adventures, even a, a relatively indoorsy young boy such as myself. So we would build forts and we would spend hours upon hours, day after day, back in the woods, on adventures. We discovered hidden paradises like Snake City, a place where we saw a snake one time, at Trash City, way back in the woods and actually really, really difficult to get to. We found, it was unmistakable once you found it, uh, but it was this massive pit which was kind of grown over uh, but there were old artifacts of discarded items, parts of cars and random things from, from decades, or I don't know how long before, but again, just an amazing place to go treasure hunting for, for young boys like, like my brothers and me. And so one winter afternoon, uh, one of my brothers and I venture off looking for Trash City. We eventually find it, and we're just treasure hunting, and it's snowing outside. And so we, we search and we hunt for a couple of hours. And then uh, after we'd been out there a long time and, and before it starts to get dark, we realized we need to, to head home. And so we start to head home. Well, by the time we started to head home, it was a wintry paradise. It was the, the, the ground was covered with a blanket of white snow and there was snow all over the trees and everywhere. It was beautiful. It was idyllic, but it was also rather disorienting. So we started to try to find our way home and all the normal markers, pointers for, yes, headed the right direction, young fellas. We couldn't see them. We didn't recognize them. And so we, we got twisted and, and turned around and we, we evidently were walking in circles for we kept finding our way back to Trash City and making no progress after trying and trying and trying to go home. Well, eventually I started to get scared. I remember actually crying. I could, I could see my headline in the next day's paper, Young Kid Freezes to Death in Trash City, he knew he should have stayed home. So we kept looking and, and my mom had this, this is the South and my mom's a, a wonderful, tough Southern lady. She had this gigantic cast iron bell, which she would ring when it was time for my brothers and I to come home for dinner. And so she would ring this bell and and eventually, my brother and I, we finally start to see more familiar sights and then more and more familiar and more and more relief coming in. And then we finally saw our backyard and the silhouette of our house and we made it home. And we lived and I'm here to <laughs> tell the story. Thank you. Five out of five stars. The book of Ruth is a remarkable little book containing a remarkable story. I've actually, I don't know if I'm supposed to tell you this, but I've just finished preaching the book of Ruth at my church. It's been one of my favorite books I've ever, I've ever preached. It's one of two books in the Bible which is named after a woman, the other book being Esther. It's the only book in the Bible named after a Gentile. It's named after a, a non-Jewish person, a, a not an outsider to the people of God. It was written some 1,000 to 1,200 years before the arrival of Christ. Israel is in this time in the promised land. So that land of Canaan promised to Abraham all the way back from Genesis 12 and on. Israel is now there, but they've not yet established themselves as a kingdom. In fact, the book of Ruth is very much telling the story of, of how that came about, how Israel became 
a kingdom. We don't know who the author of Ruth is. Many suggestions of different prophets like Nathan or Samuel or some even say Melchizedek, which I have no idea, but I'm going to guess I'm going with Melchizedek because why not? Nobody really knows who wrote the book of Ruth. In your English Bibles, the book of Ruth is positioned uh, historically after the book of Judges and right before the books of First and Second Kings, which is really helpful from a historical perspective because think about it. The book of Judges end, ends and we read that there's no king in the land of Israel. By the time we turn to First Kings and Second Kings, there's a king and there's a kingdom and Ruth sits right between that transition. And actually part of what Ruth is doing is helping to explain how we get, how we got from no king to king. In the Hebrew Bible, on the other hand, Ruth is positioned much later in the canon. And in fact, it comes after the book of Proverbs, which is helpful and significant from a totally different angle because the book of Proverbs ends famously with Proverbs chapter 31, the Proverbs written after and about the worthy woman. You read in the Hebrew Bible, in other words, you read Proverbs 31 and you read an excellent wife who can find, she's far more precious than jewels. The Proverbs begin, uh, begins, many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. So the proverb ends. And with that ending and this ordering of the Bible, you turn the page to the book of Ruth. Do you see? Who's called by the narrator of Ruth, a worthy woman. Same language from Proverbs 31. The first chapter of Ruth, which we'll be studying together this morning, is arranged geographically, which you can, if you just look through and scan through the chapter, you can see this quite clearly. There are three different scenes taking place in three different places, all in one chapter. So if you're a note taker, I'm just going to, I'm just going to follow, if you just want to follow along and see where I am in the chapter, I'm just going to follow along these three geographic scenes. First, the chapter begins away in Moab. In verses one through five. Secondly, the chapter transitions to the journey back home to Israel, to Bethlehem in verses six through 18. And then finally, uh, the ladies arrive back home in Bethlehem in verses 19 through 22. So let's, let's dive into this wonderful little book and this first scene where we encounter a family of refugees in Moab. Verse one, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. This opening verse situates this story into a specific time when it reads in the days when the judges ruled. So again, Israel occupies in this moment the promised land. They have made it into their new home but then pretty quickly, almost instantaneously, things get dark and then really dark. Israel forsakes God. Israel worships the Baals. Women are regularly assaulted. Judges 19 is one of the darkest chapters in the entire Bible. All of that dark tale is told by the book of Judges. And the note that the author of Judges keeps repeating to explain the situation and how we got to this darkness again and again and again is this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And so everybody did what was right in his own eyes. That's the final verse of the book of Judges, but it's a repeated phrase throughout the book. Israel had no king, so everybody became a king. 
and the nation descended thus into moral chaos. Well, that's the setting for the book of Ruth. Those awful, dark, dangerous days, especially for women, in the book of Judges, the days where there was no king. In those days, we read, there was a famine in the land. Now, there's an irony, which you and I might miss just just reading through this first chapter. There's an irony, even in these first couple of verses, which no original reader would have missed as as they read this opening to this book of Ruth. The land here, there's a famine we read in the land. What is the land? The land is the promised land. It's Canaan, which throughout the Old Testament goes by another nickname, probably its most popular nickname throughout the Old Testament. It's also called the land flowing with milk and honey. Do you know why it was called that? Because it was the land flowing with milk and honey. This was not desert, dry land. I went to Israel in 2014 and and went with a team and took a little trip there. And I expected to walk out and see sandals and deserts. I don't know why. Naivety, uh, ignorance, Sunday school teachers. I don't know why. But I stepped out and I walked and I beheld what to me looked like Greece, a, a green, plush, Mediterranean paradise. It's the land flowing with milk and honey. And Elimelech and Naomi are specifically from within that land flowing of, with milk and honey. They're specifically from Bethlehem. Do you know what Bethlehem means? It means house of bread, a house where there's always bread, a house where the fridge is always full, the pantry is always full. So think about this wild irony which begins this book, this story begins by introducing us to a man from the house of bread in the land of milk and honey, fleeing because of of all things of a famine. The irony is thick, but it also gives us a clue as to what was going on here. You see, God had repeatedly warned Israel that if she abandoned him, if she went after other gods, he would turn from her and he would shut up the heavens, turning off and calling off the rains and cursing the lands. In the book of Ruth, God has called off the rains. In the book of Ruth, in the days of Judges, apparently Israel has fallen under God's curse which is important not just because it explains how we got here, but also because it informs us of where to go if we're Israel during these dark days of the judges when there is a famine. We've seen in the Bible, by the time we come to Ruth, we've seen famines before, several actually. And we've seen the awful devastation and danger that happens when the people of God, Abraham twice, Isaac, again, repeating the sins of his father. We've seen what happens when famine comes in the, in, the, in the place of God to the people of God and the people of God turn their backs on God, trust their own devices and flee for greener pastures. We've seen that story before. It never turns good. What should have happened here, Elimelech, Naomi, and all Israel, they should not here have left the promised land. They should have seen God's judgment, understood what it meant because the book told them what it meant, repented, cried out to God in repentance and for mercy and invited everybody around them they could to repent with them and beg God to cause it to rain again. That's what should have happened, but instead they take a journey. Just, just 30 miles, some 30 miles, just a few days, no more than a week by foot to Moab. The nation descended from Lot, if you remember, and Lot's incestuous relationship with his daughter in Genesis 19. 
the nation whose king had bought a prophet magician to pronounce curses upon Israel before it backfired, if you remember Numbers 22. The nation who worshipped other gods, who sacrificed children to appease those gods, 2 Kings 3. A people forbidden by God to ever enter into the assembly of Israel because of their evil, Deuteronomy 23, Moab. The story of Ruth begins with a refugee family in a foreign godless land in search of food. They must have been welcomed here, or at least tolerated. They turn their back on God. They turn their back on God's promises, and it seems to pay off. Sin is often lucrative in the short term, isn't it? Until one day when all their luck dried up. Verse 3, But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman, Naomi that is, was left without her two sons and without her husband. Ten years passed just like that from verses 2 through 4. Both sons, we learn, Malon and Kilion, have taken Moabite wives, forbidden by God, but also inevitable as they look for food in Moab. And then disaster strikes. First, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, dies. So Naomi's now a widow. Next, both sons. Malon means sickly. Kilion means wasting away. So their names come true. They both die. Naomi is now husbandless and childless. She's lost everything in a foreign land. The author captures this moment and her life artistically in verse 5, where it says, look, look, we read, as Naomi becomes simply the woman. That's all she is now. A nameless woman who has lost everything. Surely Naomi agrees with this perspective. The word she chooses to capture her own new status at the end of the chapter, verse 21, empty. I wonder how many of you, in one way or a thousand ways, feels empty this morning. What you once had, or maybe what you assumed that you would surely have by now, do you have it? The marriage you thought you'd have, the family you thought you'd have, the relationship with your children in the house or grown that you thought you'd have or you should have or any good Christian parent will have, the friendships you thought you'd have, the job you thought you'd have, the money and the security you thought you'd have by now, the recognition you thought you'd have, the position, the status you thought you'd surely earn by your hard work, the joy you thought you'd have in life. Is that what you have? That is what you'd have. I'd love to meet you after the service and shake your hand and get some advice. Life tends to leave you empty, doesn't it? If not now, then later. We all, by the end, just lose so much and keep losing more. And we deserve it. Sure, you and I have turned our backs on God, just like this family at the beginning of Ruth. We've all dashed for our own Moab. So we, we all deserve it, but that doesn't, 
as true it is true, but that doesn't really help when we've lost and we feel empty, does it? It just adds it just adds shame to the sting that we're already feeling. All for a merciful God who would just help. Whatever we'd done, he'd just help. Naomi's empty, and so she goes for the one thing that's there. Maybe when everything else fails, home. Secondly, the scene transitions to their journey home. The most important word in this entire second section, which is the main part of the chapter, and probably the most important word in this entire chapter is the word return. Look in your Bibles. It's it's everywhere. It's in verse 6, she arose to return from Moab. It's in verse 7, they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. It's in verse 8, and it's just repeated again and again and again throughout the chapter. Twelve times the same word keeps appearing in this one chapter, return. In verse 6, after more than a decade away in Moab, Naomi gets up, she arose, and she makes her return home. And her daughters-in-law start walking with her. You, you sort of get the impression that you know, maybe there were tears, maybe there were some hugs goodbye. And, and, and then Naomi gets up to leave and she just sort of realizes that they're just, just sort of following along with her. Like, a, you know, maybe you've been out on an adventure somewhere and there's a dog and you were kind to it and just sort of stray dog following you home. And you're like, you, you, got, you got to go back. You got to go back. She stops, Naomi does, in verse 8, and she sends both her daughters-in-law back home. She prays a blessing over them, notice. May the Lord, that's, that's Yahweh, Israel's God, may the Lord deal kindly with you. The word deal kindly there is, is hesed. It's uh, one of the most important books in the Bible and in the book of Ruth. It, it's, it's God's covenantal, loyal love, transcending, surpassing all other loves, it's undeserved love, it's, it's better than the love you and I naturally show to others. Naomi prays this over her daughters-in-law, may the Lord deal kindly, hesed, with you. She cares for them, notice, even in her pain, the best she knows how. Naomi does love these two girls. She's clearly grown to love them. You can see as well that they've also grown to love her. They lift up their voices in verse 10 to weep, and they insist on returning with her. But Naomi won't budge. Look carefully at her words beginning in verse 11. But Naomi said, turn back. That's the same word, return. Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back. Same word again. My daughters, go your way for I'm too old to have a husband. And if I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices, Ruth and Orpah did, and they wept again. We're again and again invited in this chapter and really throughout the entire book. We're again and again invited into Naomi's pain in the story by her words, also by the narrator's words. She's empty, she's bitter. Her time has expired. She feels, notice, she feels that she's underneath God's curse. Look at her words. The hand of the Lord has gone out against, not 
God's people, not Israel, the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Do you see what she's saying? She's reading her life, her story, the death all around her as God's judgment of her, as his curse of her. She loves these girls. That's precisely why she tells them to leave. I'm cursed. Get away from me, she's saying. Naomi has lost hope. And I wonder where you've lost hope this morning. Maybe something that you've long ago given up on God ever doing or changing in your life. Maybe the thing you've ceased praying for. Do you know what it is to lose hope? To feel empty. What happens next in verse 14, I'm sure Naomi didn't expect. There's no way for the record you or I would expect it were we not familiar with this story Orpah finally, predictably, relented. She listens to Naomi and to Naomi's reasons. But Ruth won't let go. The narrator pictures her here literally physically clinging to Naomi, like being dragged by her as she clings to her legs. Verse 15, Naomi pleads, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return, same word, return after her. Any of you guys remember the 1990s Disney classic, White Fang? Yeah. No, I asked this to our congregation. They're all, they're all so offensively young. I was like, are you kidding me? You don't even know what White, White Fang. You should definitely watch it. Over. I think it's kind of holiday-ish. There's a lot of snow, at least, in the movie. At the end of White Fang, massive spoiler alert, apologies. At the end of the White Fang, it's, it's, a, it's a story about a, a boy and his dog, and they fall in love, and they bond. And for different reasons, at the end of the story, he's got to get rid of the dog for the dog's on good. And so they're attached to each other at the hip and, and, and the boy finally sends him away and the dog's just looking at him super confused and it looks like there's tears welled up in the dog's eyes somehow and, and the boy realizes he's got to get rid of this dog. The dog will never leave him. So the boy picks up stones and sticks and starts throwing at him and he's just crying, go, go. That's, that's Naomi here in this moment for Ruth's own good. As much as it pains her, go, Naomi, tearfully yells. And then Ruth utters the immortal words which will alter history and redemptive history in particular. Verse 16, but Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God shall be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. Amazing. I want to press pause here in this moment with these two young women, with their mother-in-law, and this momentous moment in history. Ruth and Orpah are probably, if they married according to the customs and ages of the day, they're probably even still widows in their mid to at most late 20s. They can still marry they're still of childbearing age. They still have good prospects in life. They have so much going, they have their entire lives before them, Ruth and Orpah. Ruth and Orpah, remember, are both Moabites. They worshiped other gods. They probably would have grown up offering sacrifices to other gods of Moab. If they go with Naomi, 
Well, Naomi, for one person in the story, clearly knows what awaits them. Naomi has no other sons. She has no prospects for sons. She's too old now. She has no family waiting for her to take her in and provide for the girls. She's from a small town, Naomi is, Bethlehem, tiny little town, 2,000 people when Jesus was born, presumably even smaller then. She's from a tiny town and she has nothing. This is a man's world, Israel, a world of patriarchy. And a widow like Naomi awaits a brutal destiny, basically of homelessness, a life with Naomi. Naomi is a life of emptiness. And so Orpah returns home while Ruth clings and returns with Naomi to Bethlehem. Why? That's what you've got you've to ask. Why? Ruth loves Naomi, but so does Orpah. Ruth deals kindly, has said, with Naomi. Orpah's kind with Naomi as well. What's the difference? We should ponder that together. Orpah trades a life with Naomi in the promised land effectively for a life, for comfort, for security, for marriage, for children, for prosperity. Orpah, in other words, falls into a long line, a a sort of family tree of those who will, if I could put it this way, who will come near to Jesus who are good to Jesus, who like Jesus, but who will not worship Jesus. The rich young ruler. King Agrippa. Do you remember Agrippa with Paul? Paul, would you have me to repent and believe your gospel? Simon Magus. Remember Simon? Orpah. Orpah made the sensible choice. The choice our parents all raised us to make. And in eternity, it cost her everything. Orpah makes the obvious choice. And if I could pause here to cause and invite you to reflect, maybe that's some of you right now. Facing the same choice and feeling the same way. Fine with Jesus. I've got no problem with Jesus. I may be even interested in or curious about Jesus. I'm good with Jesus. But maybe you've never surrendered your life to him as your king. If only... If only you'd see that you're trading, if you stay there forever, you're trading your eternity and eternal joy for comfort and familiarity here. You can't just be, none of us can just be all right with Jesus. I'm fine with Jesus. I've got no problem with Jesus. He's the king. You worship him. You're either for him or against him. Where do you stand? Ruth, on the other hand, trades all of that and everything she knows for Naomi for Naomi's foreign land, and ultimately for Naomi's God. Your people, my people. Your God, my God, she says. Ruth takes everything she has, her gods, her former gods, her people, her home, her prospects for marriage and children and financial security in life. She takes all that she has and she slides it all to the middle of the table and says, all in. For Ruth, it's an act of loyalty, the author says, of of hesed, of covenant love and kindness, it's also a confession of faith. What we're witnessing here is a conversion. Your God, my God, Ruth says. That word I told you about earlier, that most important word repeated 12 times in this chapter, return, the the, the word in Hebrew is shuv. It can also be translated, the same word, and often is translated throughout the rest of the Bible as repent. 
That's what repentance means, actually. That's, that's the image and illustration of repentance. It means you're, you're headed in a certain direction. It's actually a military term. It means you turn around, you do an about face, and you turn and you walk the other direction. That's exactly what we're witnessing here in this story. The author is doing something here, and through this entire chapter, it's a chapter about returning, yes. It's a chapter about a journey back home, yes. But it's so much more than that. It's a chapter about repentance. Ruth 1 is... The story of Naomi repenting, she's got a long way to go. She's hurt. She's bitter. She's a bitter woman. But she leaves Moab and finally returns to the promised land where she belonged. That's repentance. Ruth 1 is also the story of Ruth repenting. Look, look, look ahead at verse 22 at the end of the chapter. It says, Naomi returned, there's that word, and Ruth the Moabite with her now watch this, who returned, same word, from the country of Moab. Ruth returned to Bethlehem? She's never been to Bethlehem before. It doesn't make any sense, does it? What, what is she returning to? Don't skim over those words. How can Ruth return? The author's doing so much more than just a little story here about geography and where you live and where you belong. It's a story about about repentance. Ruth is repenting for the first time in her life. She turns from her gods and from her former life, and she comes home too for the first time to the God who made her. Nice to meet you. Repentance. The path home for Ruth and Naomi, both, was the path of repentance. And when Naomi, verse 18 says, and when Naomi saw that she was determined, Ruth was determined to go with her, finally, she said no more. Which brings us to the final scene, just briefly, which brings us back home in Bethlehem in verses 19 through the end of the chapter. And I just want to show you briefly, there are at least three chords of hope in this final scene, which is, which is a lot of crying, a lot of sadness. But there are at least three chords of hope buried here in this scene. The first chord is there return Ruth and Naomi's and the stir it causes in the town. Look at verse 19. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. Look at this. The, the whole town, the entire town is a buzz with a strange travelers. It's a, it's a small town and everybody's heard. Naomi, is that you? 10 years later, 10 years grayer, 10 years more wrinkled. Naomi, is that you? And is that a Moabite? What's she doing here? The whole town is a buzz. Sometimes one single conversion. I, I, just, I just taught a class on Jonathan Edwards in the First Great Awakening. That wild movement which began 1730s, 1740s, New England, early colonial America. That massive movement which affected our entire country all began in Jonathan Edwards' congregation in, Massachusetts, in Connecticut with one single conversion. The entire town is a buzz here. The second chord of hope is buried in Naomi's anguish. And the women said, is this Naomi? Look at verse 20. She said to them, Naomi said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity, calamity upon me? Verse, verses 20 and 21, 
or something like a lament. I don't know if you guys ever pray during your services, a prayer of lament. This is like that, a, a, a public lament. It's not pretty. Naomi is raw and, and drenched in her own tears here. She's angry. She's angry at the Lord, but watch this. She still believes in the Lord. She's crying out at him, really, if you think about it. She calls him El Shaddai here, the Almighty. She sees her entire life, it's clear, as lived under his hand, under his guidance, under his providence. That's why she's so angry. She knows he's behind all of this. Naomi is the most ambiguous character by far throughout the book. She's also surely the most relatable character in the book. Ever lost everything? <laughs> Probably not. But imagine if you did, and, and yeah, again, you know you did wrong, but you also know God is in charge and he could have stopped it and he's supposed to be merciful. What would you feel? What would you say? What would you think about God? Would you stop believing? Would you just hide Romans eight twenty eight in your heart and just say it again and again and again? He works all things together. It's all for my good. Would you, really? Or would you kick and scream and cry and blame but maybe still believe, just like Naomi here. Naomi's an open, bleeding heart. She's also dead wrong. I wonder if you noticed that in her lament. She's entirely wrong. She tells the entire town that she's come back empty. It's quite obviously false. The entire, anybody with eyes can see it. The whole town can see it. She has no husband. She has no sons. She has no possessions. She has no full pockets. She has no real plan. You see her point, but what does she have? Do you see? What does she have? Ruth, the Moabite, her loyal daughter-in-law who has pledged her life to her and pledged her life to God. Naomi's not empty. She just can't see it. She has Ruth. She has all the precious promises of God. And by the way, aren't we a whole lot like Naomi yet again right here? God, God gives and God takes away and we almost never know why and we almost never see entirely or even partially sometimes what he's doing and we so often miss what he's given because we're so stuck on what he's taken. Naomi's like that, just like us, but Ruth is written, the book of Ruth is written so that we can see what she cannot see. God took away everything Naomi had. She really is in a lot of ways, it's like a miniature Job, Ruth chapter one. But he gave to Naomi, God did, Ruth, who Naomi didn't really want to come with her. And yet here she is. And Ruth, Naomi has no idea. Ruth is going to bring blessing to the entire world, including Naomi. Naomi had no clue, and so often, neither do you, neither do I. We just know that God is good, and his plans are better than we can imagine, and sometimes all you have, that's all you have, and sometimes and always, that's enough. The chapter ends with a third final chord of hope, just briefly, and a new beginning. Verse 22, look at it. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. There's one final chord, little note of hope. Do you see it? A barley harvest. <laughs> God is doing a new work. The famine is over. The curse is lifted from Israel. There's grain again. Bread has returned to the house of bread. And though this little town cannot yet see it, this little town of Bethlehem, and perhaps Naomi cannot yet see it either, 
God is doing and has already begun a new and greater work as well. A new work in Naomi and surprise. Through the Gentile Moabite widow, she's brought back to Bethlehem. Through her, if you can believe it, the royal line is going to spring forth. David and ultimately a savior is going to come from Ruth the Moabite. They say if you ever move back to wherever you came from, they say you never return to the same place. You always go back wanting what you had before, but it's never, it's never the same. Sometimes I wonder, the older I get, I wonder what it would be like if I ever moved back to the town I grew up in where so many of my childhood memories are just sort of locked away forever and all this nostalgia and it becomes more and more charming in some ways as I get older. But I also know uh, that it would never be the same. The town is not the same. I'm not the same. The people are all different. It would be totally different now. I imagine some of you in here, for one reason or another, would never, ever, ever want to go back home. Too much pain. Nothing's left there. It's not for you home anymore. My favorite image in the Bible for heaven is the image of home. The place we were made for with the God who made us and who made us to be with him forever. The place with a God who is himself our home. The path there to our true and everlasting home is the same path that Naomi and Ruth had to tread in this first chapter of Ruth. The path home is the path of repentance. You must turn from your sins and bow to Jesus as king. That's the only path to forgiveness. And it's also the way back home. God, thank you for hope in surprising places. Thank you that you do not despise small or weak or even stranger other things. God, we pray that you would Strengthen us as a people seeking to follow you, to know you. Strengthen our resolve and our faith to follow you more, O oh God. Keep us, we pray, by your spirit, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.